All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you, each week I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is uh, in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes a newsletter called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And with regard to Chen's newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list. And that list uh, uh, is available at... uh, miningstocks.com. So you go to miningstocks.com, put your name on a waiting list, and I should mention uh, that Chen accepts new subscribers at the beginning of each calendar quarter. In other words, starting tomorrow, he will be accepting over the next uh, couple of weeks uh, a set number of new subscribers to his uh, newsletter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And for those of you who may not be familiar with Chen, he has done a remarkable job investing his family's money and helping uh, subscribers earn money as well with his newsletter. Just to give you an idea, he started out in the year 2003 with a $5,400 nest egg, and he turned that into over $2.5 million uh, in the next, within the next 10 years. So that's uh, a pretty, pretty strong uh, back, a pretty strong performance, I think, by any measure. And uh, Chen brings a, a unique investment approach uh, in his newsletter that you may want to check out and give it a try. Uh, I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show um, each and every week. Uh, it is uh, a time when uh, certainly the kind of things that we talk about on this show are not um, nearly as popular as they were when we started uh, this show back in uh, 2009 at the bottom of the financial crisis. But I do believe that uh, the conditions are being set, unfortunately, for another uh, for, for another decline in the equity markets and uh, the economy, which has never really, in my view, ever come out of a recession, uh, is mired in debt that is growing very, very rapidly relative to income. And that's always a recipe for disaster when uh, debt grows faster than income, whether it's an individual family or whether it's a, a, comp- a country, a company or a country overall. Uh, so I think that uh, the kinds of things we talk about on this show uh, will be back in vogue in the not-too-distant future. I'm not saying that gleefully. I would really rather see a, an economy that is humming along very prosperously in which we could make money doing things that help people. Uh, that we devote so much effort to trying to uh, find gold and other precious uh, precious metals and uh, commodities in the ground. Well, while those are useful... Uh, in terms of uh, modern society, certainly the emphasis and the energy that's spent on precious metals is not particularly useful, except that 
gold is by uh, by nature has been made and the markets have deemed it to be money it is a confidence money it is the money that it, people turn to when uh, when countries debase their currency and we are in the process of debasing the dollar and other currencies around the world like never before uh, and that is why I am very happy to have the kinds of sponsors that I have on this show because I think they are offering uh, answers to the problems that are being created by policymakers, uh, by the people that run the Federal Reserve, the central banks around the world, the people that run our governments that are really looking out for themselves rather than for their constituents, rather than for the people as a whole. But in any event, we do want to thank, again, thank each of you for listening to this show, and we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Caden Resources, Ganey Capital Corporation, Wellgreen Platinum, and Cornerstone Capital. I've titled today's show, Where on Earth Can We Go to Make Money? Uh, today's guests, uh, returning all of them, Adrian Day, Greg Johnson, Gene Epstein, David Jensen, and Daniel McAdams. The global economy is incredibly built, it is, in, I should say, increasingly built, on the quicksand of zero interest rates, which leads to malinvestment and overconsumption. And rampant manipulation of the interest rates, it's certainly uh, causing, as I say, malinvestment. Uh, it is not allowing the price mechanism to work in allocating capital. And David Stockman has pointed that out on this show and elsewhere uh, very frequently. Um, as a result, financial markets, I believe, are increasingly shaky. I think the last few days we're starting to see a lot of uh, or a certain loss of confidence in the, in the equity markets. And uh, many technical analysts that I follow are believing that we are increasingly vulnerable in the equity markets. But against this backdrop uh, of, a, of a world uh, in which money uh, is debased, um, in about a half an hour, we're going to talk to Adrian Day, who writes uh, the Global Analyst Newsletter and also manages money for institutions and individuals. I'm going to try to find out what he is doing with his money and with his clients' money. Again, Adrian has a global perspective, uh, and so it fits uh, the title of today's show, Where in the World Can We Go to Make Money? I am uh, certainly an unashamed gold bug, but I do believe that at least for now, the outlook for platinum and palladium is very bright for several reasons. Uh, the supplies out of South Africa and Russia, for example, uh, I think are, are crucial. At the same time, the need for platinum and palladium and catalytic converters, uh, absolute necessity uh, with the world's um, uh, increasing environmental concerns in China and elsewhere. Uh, certainly, you can't build cars these days without catalytic converters. Uh, and so I think the fundamentals look extremely good for, uh, for platinum and palladium, which is why I'm really pleased to have Wellgreen Platinum uh, as a sponsor. Well, it's really only one reason that I'm pleased to have them as a sponsor. Really, the main reason we're going to find out about in a few minutes uh, with Greg Johnson, the CEO of the company. He's going to be with us to talk about their Wellgreen Platinum Palladium polymetallic project up in the Yukon. And this is really a, a global, really a world-class deposit, if ever there was one. There have been some issues in the past that uh, some analysts have voiced some concern about, and we are going to talk to uh, Greg today about those. And it looks to me as if uh, is it Mr. Johnson and his team are overcoming a lot of the obstacles that have been voiced in the past. And if that is the case, uh, I think it's uh, only a matter of time before the larger 
mainstream economy or mainstream, um, say, investment houses start to pay some real attention to uh, Well Green Platinum. Stock is selling at around fifty cents uh, today. Uh, as uh, we go to uh, to, uh, to this, as this show is beginning, uh, in the second hour of today's show, I'm going to be speaking with Gene Epstein of Barrons. Uh, we'll talk to him about his latest economic beat column, in which he uh, talks about. Uh, well, the title of his column is "Some Economic Sins in Need of Atonement." Gene will talk to us about what he thinks uh, some of those uh, sins are in the uh, in the economy. Gene holds out uh, the view that as a columnist, he has a responsibility for honesty and integrity to his uh, to, to the people that read Barron's. And uh, so Gene will be a- around to talk about some of his own sins and uh, some of the sins of others that he sees that should be rectified and should be atoned for. David Jensen will speak uh, also uh, some really interesting topics that I think we're going to get uh, out of David today. Uh, he has mentioned to me that he sees a parallel between what happened in France during the days of Charles de Gaulle. As de Gaulle demanded his gold from the United States, it seems as though the CIA began to become involved in France and to foment dissidents among the students in France. And David seems to think there could be some parallels between that and what's going on in Hong Kong right now, just as the Shanghai uh, bullion exchange starts to uh, starts to uh, be implemented. In fact, it was, I think, last week uh, put into effect. So we'll hear what David has to say about that. And then uh, back with me again after a couple of weeks' absence is Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. And Daniel has some really interesting things to talk about, an article that he's written, posted at the website, the Ron Paul Institute web- website. Uh, it talks about f- the fake threat invented by Obama to launch war in Syria. Well, Daniel always has some very interesting things and certainly non-mainstream views of things. So we're going to really look forward to Daniel uh, as well as David Jensen and Gene Epstein in the second hour of today's show, which is aired exclusively at jtaylormedia.com. Well, we do have a lot of material to cover today, so uh, let's go now to our first commercial break. And when we come back, uh, we'll be back with Greg Johnson uh, of Well Green Platinum. So don't go away. We'll be right back. business you'll find the experts here voice america business network caden resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in mexico the company's flagship el barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in mexico The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Greg Johnson. He is the president and CEO of Wellgreen Platinum Limited. Uh, this is a, a company that trades in Toronto under the symbol WG, a symbol in the U.S. Uh, you can buy it there, as I have, under the symbol WGPLF. Uh, 93.7 million shares outstanding. Earlier today, when I glanced at the uh, at the tape, it was uh, 54 cents in U.S. money. Gives it a market cap of about 51 million dollars. For those of you who are not familiar with Greg, uh, he uh, he is, as I say, he is now the president of, of Wellgreen Platinum, uh, but he has over 25 years of experience in the exploration and development of large-scale projects in the mining industry, and that's certainly what uh, he is working on now with the Wellgreen project in the Yukon. Um, he, he's raised over $650 million in project financing over the past, so it shows uh, he's a serious player in this business. He was president and CEO of South American Silver during a period in which the company's market cap increased from $20 million to uh, $350 million. And as a co-founder and executive at Nova Gold Resources, he was a key member of that executive team that led Nova Gold from a $50 million market cap to over a $2 billion uh, mar- company, and uh, he oversaw the expansion of its resource base from over 30 million ounces of gold uh, to over 30 million ounces of gold, I should say. And he began his career with Placer Dome, now Barrick Gold, uh, holding various senior roles in domestic and international exploration and projects from early discovery stage to uh, to feasibility. And uh, those in operations in Alaska, Canada, Africa, Australia, and Russia. So he's been around uh, around the mining uh, industry, around the world, and uh, he certainly has a very strong uh, academic background as well. So welcome, Greg. It's really good to have you with me again. Well, thanks, Jay. It's a pleasure to be back. You know, it's uh, it really is a pleasure to watch Wellgreen Platinum. Uh, I, I maybe would like to start our conversation just very briefly with an overview of the Platinum Group metals. It seems to me, uh, from what I see, and one of the reasons I I took a real look at your company uh, was because there aren't very many Platinum Group producers out there, uh, South Africa, and it's having its problems with the miners and difficult mining conditions. Uh, Russia, uh, I've heard rumors that Russia has even been out in the market buying platinum or palladium uh, in the markets as well, but there's not very many, there's not much production coming from any other part of the world. So how does the platinum and palladium markets, how do they look to you right now? Well, I think you, you've really highlighted, um, you know, the situation in, in the PGMs, uh, the Platinum Group Metals, is, is really quite unique. I mean, most of the precious metals, um, if you look at gold, you look at silver, you look at even the base metals, um, you know, you see this kind of growing demand that goes along with population growth, and then the industry meets that demand each year by, you know, adding new mine supply. 
But the thing that's so striking about the platinum group metals is that the combination of uh, the mine production, which is so concentrated in southern Africa and Russia, has meant that um, though demand has been increasing since the mid-'80s, particularly because of catalytic converter use uh, you know, for, for clean air, uh, we've seen mine supply actually peak in 2006 for platinum and 2004 for palladium, and that uh, annual mine supply has been falling uh, for the last 8 to 10 years in both those metals. So it's almost set up the, the perfect storm in terms of fundamentals with uh, an increasing need to um, you know, improve uh, the uh, or to, to add demand in terms of catalytic converters to for you know air quality reasons, particularly sure. in, in the emerging world, and a lack of mine supply, um, and so it sets up a situation. Though it's not apparent in in the market of the last two weeks, which I think has primarily been a, a U.S. dollar strengthening um, situation. The fundamentals are you know really about as good as they could be, with almost a million ounce of deficit production for each platinum and palladium uh, in a total market that's 8 to 10 million ounces. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are, that's 10% of global production each yeah. year that's chewing through whatever above-ground stockpiles might be out there. Uh, up until very recently, palladium was one of the top-performing metals uh, over the last year, and uh, platinum likewise looked very strong fundamentally. And I know we've gone through a, a short, sharp uh, correction in the sector, but I think longer term, the fundamentals are likely uh, to bear out that we're, we're likely to see higher metal prices, uh, not lower, at least in the mm-hmm. PGM space. Well, it's, it's interesting to note David Jensen, who's on our show, uh, will be on again in the second hour of today's show, talks about the uh, the premium that is actually being paid in the Shanghai markets as opposed to the uh, more paper-orientated markets here for platinum and palladium, and they've been as high as 20 Twenty over twenty percent, I think, for palladium and uh, or something around that around that range, and part of that has to do with taxes. But a, a good a part of that metal apparently is not coming in through the official sector is being is coming in the back door, given the the lower prices here. But uh, it, it certainly would suggest that the demand for platinum and palladium may be even stronger than what seems to be the case in the in the paper markets. But in any event, it does look to me that. Uh, it's very, very bullish for uh, for platinum and palladium going forward. Uh, but I'd like to now turn to the other reason that I really wanted to get involved and purchase shares of your stock and the reason that I also have you as a recommendation in my newsletter, and that is the project itself, uh, the Well Green project in the Yukon, which I actually visited before you became the president of the company. Uh, that was back, I believe, in November of uh, 2012. Uh, can you describe some of the technical work that has been done roughly over the last 18 months or so uh, that this really, I think, really set this project up uh, in a way that a lot of people, well, I've heard a lot of criticisms, some criticisms from some of the professionals concerning some issues such as metallurgical, you know, recoveries. Uh, also, you know, can you, is there enough high-grade material uh, to make this thing work. But can you talk a little bit about some of the technical uh, improvements and, and um, breakthroughs that you've had that uh, might shed this project in a stronger economic light than people might have viewed it before? Yeah, no, I think your, I think your point is, is very good. And, and Jay, our, our team arrived, um, you know, between 18 months and two years ago. So, uh, you know, over that period, uh, the company has invested about $15 million into the ground in new drilling, 
uh, as well as you know new metallurgical studies that, that are going to form the basis for our, our updated economics that are going to be out here in the next couple of months. And when we all arrived, we recognized you know Well Green was a very large system historically. It was developed as a high-grade underground mine by Hud Bay, one of Canada's mid-sized uh, you know copper-based metal producers. Mm-hmm. Um, it operated it for a few years as a high-grade nickel-copper PGM mine. Um, and then in the 1980s, um, you know, Robert Friedland uh, picked up the project as, as part of this galactic company. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the first time it was recognized that in addition to these high-grade narrow zones, that there was you know, much broader mineralization that could be bulk mined. And so uh, when our team came in, the first thing we looked at, we said, wow, it's a, it's, it's a big potential resource. Of course, 95% of the resource at the time was the inferred category, which means mm-hmm. it's geologically reasonable, but mm-hmm. it requires additional drilling to prove it up. And so our work over the last two years has been uh, focused on refining that geologic model, understanding uh, so that we can properly correlate from from zone to zone, uh, how those various uh, geologic units um, correlate, and then using that information to tightly constrain a geologic resource and build the confidence level. And I, I can tell you that um, you know our advancement in that front is, is exceptional. We converted 75% of the previous inferred material uh, into the highest confidence category measured in indicated resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and that material represents proven improbable reserves once it goes into a pre-feasibility or a feasibility to, to, to really emphasize you know, the confidence of that. So mm-hmm. in addition to that, with the new discovery on the Far East part of the deposit, we realized uh, that we had a very large system and we added about another 6 million ounces of new inferred material on top of that. So the combination of that conversion from inferred to the much larger measured and indicated component, uh, along with adding the new inferred ounces in this this big new discovery, was a huge step forward uh, for the company. In addition, when we look inside of that resource, and this is one of the things that's a very you know valid point to make about these large geologic systems, is that if everything that you have can only be mined on a very large scale because it's so low grade, mm-hmm. then it can make your, cha- your, your economics challenging. Uh, the opportunity here at Wellgreen is that we have layers within the geology, and those layers are very predictable, they're very consistent, and those layers have, very, have, have increasing grades as we go from the north to the south in the deposit. And those layers come right to surface with those higher grades. Mm. And so within this large, ultimate pit-constrained resource, we've got a higher-grade resource, which is the focus of our mining optimization studies that are currently underway, that contains about 5 million ounces uh, of inferred material and another 2 million ounces of measured and indicated uh, material in that higher grade resource mm. that is, is averaging about 2.5 grams uh, per ton on a platinum equivalent basis. So for your listeners who are familiar with gold deposits, you're probably aware that deposits such as the Asisco mine, which was you know the target of this hostile takeover recently from Goldcore, is around a 1 gram average grade in a yeah. pit. Yeah. So if you can move two-and-a-half gram or even three-gram material into an open pit with similar economics, you can imagine that can be uh, a very robust project and, and can have the kinds of numbers that investors, partners, financiers are going to be interested in, in taking a look at. 
Yeah, for sure. And uh, I, I guess uh, this would be material that could be open pitted, Greg? The geometry uh, of the deposit is such that we have a, a zone of higher grade material, which is on the western end of our deposit, uh, and then we've got that higher grade material continuing uh, down through uh, the system into the into the far east. But it appears that we've got um, you know one or two of these starter pit uh, areas uh, that are going to come in that that can have that are dominantly made of this higher grade material. And not only of the higher grade material, but they're also made. Um, you know, our analysis recently has um, delivered an assessment of all the both historic and recent metallurgical testing that's been done on the project over the last couple of years. And so we now have a much stronger level of confidence in addition to the resource, Jay, on mm-hmm. the recoverability of these metals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what uh, we're seeing is in these initial mine plans, uh, not only are we getting the higher grade material, but we're also getting the best recovery type materials are, are coming into those early uh, mine assessments. And so this is quite a, an exciting uh, development. Um, mm-hmm. one well, of the, is there, go ahead. Yeah, go, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Greg. Yeah, I was just going to say that one of the things that we, we realized very early on as the team started to do its work was that a lot of work had been done historically on the metallurgy, uh, and that work was representative of some of the various rocks on the deposit. But one of the breakthroughs we had was that in recognizing if we refine uh, which rock type we're working on, we have a better chance to optimize uh, the recovery. And as you pointed out in the introduction, this is a project that contains platinum and palladium and gold and nickel and copper. And you say, wow, all those metals, that sounds very complex. But in essence, what we have is we have just one or two uh, what we call sulfide metals, uh, mm-hmm. And all of these metals together occur in those. So we have a, a dominant sulfide for nickel. We have a dominant sulfide for copper. And the PGMs tend to go along with the copper and the, and the nickel. And so we can use a fairly um, simple and well-understood conventional method of crushing the ores, grinding them very finely, and then we use a process called flotation, which separates that sulfide metal-bearing material from the inert rock material and creates what's called a, a concentrate. And that mm-hmm. concentrate is a very high-value product that can then be transported to a smelter. In our case, because we're right on the coast, uh, in terms of our ports, we would likely send this material to Asia, but there's a number of other uh, smelters that could process this in Europe and North America uh, and Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, well, it certainly seems like a, a couple of the main concerns that I've had expressed uh, on this show. In fact, uh, Brent Cook was on here along with uh, Eric Coffin and John Kaiser. Uh, the issue of, you know, can you get an early uh, get, get early high grade production that would uh, that would enhance the economics of the project. Can you get uh, adequate recoveries? And I guess we'll know more about that when you come out with your new economic assessment uh, that's supposed to be coming out. In what another three, another couple of months or so? Yeah, the Q4 is our target, so before end of year, uh, uh-huh. we're, we're hoping that we may even see those numbers as, as soon as uh, sometime in November. So we could get a, a little better handle on the economics of it. Uh, one of the issues that John, I remember John Kaiser raised was, well, is this a nickel project or is it a PGM project? I, I guess uh, how the balance is, uh, current prices, how does it pan out? Is it more of a PGM or more of a, is it pretty balanced between nickel and the PGMs? Yeah, it's actually very similar to um, if people are, are you know familiar with the copper space again. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of those large copper deposits come with significant gold credits. For instance, the Kennecott 
operation in, in Utah, um, you know, was for years the largest gold mine in the world, uh, but it was a copper gold mine. Yeah. Um, so you often get co-production of base metals and, and precious metals, and, and Wellgreen is the same. You know, we will be producing uh, platinum, palladium, and gold, plus significant nickel and significant copper, and depending on your price assumptions, but if we just take today's prices as kind of representative of what we might see over the life of the mine, it's, it's roughly a third of the value is the PGMs and gold, a third of the value is nickel, and a third of the value is copper and cobalt. So mm-hmm. depending on how those prices vary, if you're a precious metals bull, for instance, and you're a bear for base metals, this would be dominated by PGMs and gold. And if you're a real bull on the nickel and, and copper space, as, as many uh, people, uh, you know, like Robert Friedland are, uh, then, you know, you can say you know, there's going to be a huge amount of cash flow that's going to come in from that component. From our perspective, the company, we just see it as a great project. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a very significant producer of PGMs. Um, you know, right now, based on the 2012 study, this could be the third largest producer of PGMs in the first world. Mm. And because it's an open pit uh, operation, which 95% of the world's platinum and, and nickel production, for that matter, is from underground mines, our cost structure is much lower, and our ability to scale the operation up and increase very materially the, the production levels could make it so this rivals the Stillwater mine in Montana in mm-hmm. terms of, uh, of platinum production with, you know, very nice credits coming in as co-products from nickel and copper. Yeah, and uh, just to give our listeners a sense of this uh, of the size of this project in terms of the ounces, I'm just looking at uh, I'm just looking at a table here that you have put out recently, Greg, that shows uh, two and a half million ounces in the measured indicated category of platinum, uh, a similar amount, two and a half, a little more, two and a half million ounces of palladium, uh, nearly a half a million ounces of gold. And then we look at the inferred category, we're looking at 6.4, 6.1 platinum and palladium respectively and 1.3 million ounces of gold. And then you've got a lot of nickel and copper and and cobalt as well. So it's it's truly a large project is uh, on the upside, though, beyond that, not that you need that. I suppose those are probably adequate numbers to start to put together economics and project financing. But is is that all there is or is there more exploration uh, beyond that? Yeah, I mean, as you point out, it is a large system already. Uh, you know, at 13.8 million ounces total in the inferred category, platinum, palladium, and gold, uh, mostly platinum and palladium, and then another 5.5 million ounces in the measured and indicated higher confidence yeah. category. Um, you know, my reference point, you know, anything that's more than 5 million ounces is world-class in scale. You know, mm-hmm. you're upper 1% of all deposits, you know, ever discovered. So something of this scale is is clearly... It, it shows already that it is a very large system. Um, and yet, from a geologic point of view, what's exciting for our team, and I'm an exploration geologist by, yeah. <laughs> by background, is that it's very early days at Wild Green. You know, That's uh, incredible. Up until recent you know, years, this project was looked at as a high-grade underground target. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so the ability to look at the disseminated material, where the, where the platinum and the nickel and the copper is just spread throughout the rock, in these very consistent layers within the ultramafic geology is very exciting. It is completely open in depth. Uh, in fact, I would, I would guess you know, 10 or more of the very best drill holes ever drilled in the project have not yet had an offset hole drilled next to them to see hmm. 
how much further does the mineralization go? Oh, so, it is uh, it is really exciting. So, what can investors look for as a catalyst that might that might draw some money and in, into this market and and cause these shares to rise a bit? What what you, you've got the economics coming out uh, in November? I guess that would be the next thing, right? That's going to be the next uh, the big catalyst. But I think uh, what this market right now is presenting is that investors. Uh, who are out there and have been following the space and quality names, you know, like Wellgreen, have an opportunity here with this short-term correction that we've seen in the sector, where I, I largely believe it's a function of U.S. dollar strength, not the fundamentals mm-hmm. of these companies or the metals, mm-hmm. to pick up names at, at incredibly cheap historic valuations and to get exposure um, you know, ahead of what I think will be a rebound on the metal prices, and in our particular case, ahead of uh, upcoming significant uh, economic uh, news in terms of this updated uh, PEA. Um, so I think for us, over the next couple of months and quarter, with the PEA coming out, the ongoing exploration work that will be part of the pre-feasibility studies and in late 2015 or late 2014 and, and 2015, and then feasibility studies in 2016. I think we've got an exciting road ahead over the next couple of years. And if, if history is any guide, if, if we look at you know names like Novagold and Ivanhoe, Detour Lake, and, and others that uh, you probably uh, have followed, I know you followed some of those names over the years. Yep. Um, you know, if we can have that type of revaluation that comes as you advance and de-risk your project towards cash flow and production, uh, you know, this, this type of opportunity is, is very exciting in terms of being able to see significant higher uh, market valuations uh, in the future as we do the kind of work we're doing. And one of the real advantages of the Wellgreen project is we're right next to a paved highway. Yeah, and, and we, we didn't concentrate. Um, right, and we didn't talk about there's some uh, develop uh, some exciting developments also in the energy space as well. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but uh, we uh, well, just 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 talk real quickly about that. Thirty seconds. Tell our listeners about energy. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that uh, in the mining space, the tried and true solution for these uh, operations that are not directly on a power line has been diesel power. Yep. It's easy. It's it's well understood. What's been evolving in the Yukon uh, over the last couple of years is the recognition of this abundant source of natural gas, particularly in Western Canada and now in Alaska, uh, is a real asset. It's half the cost of diesel. It's the same technology, uh, but it also burns much cleaner. And so we have signed uh, supply agreements with two different suppliers, one based in Alaska, one based in Western Canada, that's currently the biggest producer of liquefied natural gas in Canada. Mm-hmm. And we are in position to be able to use uh, LNG gas as mm-hmm. our uh, basically base case and to have a, a kind of a green mine from the point of view of our energy. Mm-hmm. And um, we're quite excited about this, and this should have some very positive benefits uh, in terms of the cost structure for us as well. Yeah, it'll probably start to be uh, factored into the PEA that comes out in November, I would imagine, right? So, Yeah, we plan with these uh, supply agreements to use it as our, our base case. Very good. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank you very much. This is an exciting story. Thank you very much for sharing it with our listeners, Greg, and I look forward to doing it again sometime in the not-too-distant future. I look forward to providing you an exciting update, Jay. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, folks, don't go away. We'll be right back with Adrian Day after the commercial break. And uh, Adrian will certainly have some, I think, some very uh, enlightening things to tell us about how we might make money, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Adrian Day.
always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TS. SXV and CTNXF on the OTC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me once again Adrian Day. He's been with me a, a couple, three, four times at least in the past. But uh, for the sake of those who, of you who may not be familiar with Adrian, let me give you just a little bit of his background. He is considered a pioneer in promoting the benefits of global investing uh, in the United States. And he's uh, an honors graduate at the London School of Economics. Uh, he is widely recognized for his global investment commentaries and uh, published research. He does publish a letter called uh, Adrian Day's Global uh, Analyst, uh, and he publishes that, and I, I think it's available uh, to investors or people that might want to pay the price, the subscription price. We'll ask him about that in a minute. Uh, he does also manage money under Adrian Day Asset Management, and I've known Adrian and have had the pleasure of uh, being on several panel discussions with him in the past, and uh, he is uh, always very witty and uh, also has a lot of great insights to uh, to pass along. So uh, thank you for joining me again, Adrian. It's really a pleasure to have you with me. Well, thank you, Jay, very much. Um, let's uh, let's talk a little bit before we get started. Uh, people can go to your website. Uh, I suppose the best place to go to is adrianday.com? Correct, yeah. And then if they're interested in the newsletter... They click on newsletter. If they're interested in money management, they click on money management. They're two different businesses, of course. Yeah, and so if they do that, they can find out what the um, you know what the requirements are and what the cost of your subscription is and all that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Alrighty. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, first the U.S. economy. You know, the mainstream media would have us believe that 
things aren't really all that great, but they're not really that bad. And then certainly with all of the brilliant uh, uh, minds, the PhDs from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale that run our country that are basically uh, sitting at the Federal Reserve and all those those uh, hundreds of PhD economists there that we're in good hands and things are really coming along quite well. How do you see things? Are, are we coming out of this funk? Or do we have a real good chance of restoring America to what it used to be, a thriving, booming economy? Well, two different questions, if I may, um, on the first part. The economy's improving. There's no, there's no question about that. It's better now than it was four years, five years ago. But as you, as your cynicism implies, um, very, very marginally. And, and frankly, uh, this, as we know, this recovery has been one of the slowest, and not only the slowest, but the longest on, on, on record. Here we are five years after the depth of a recession, um, and we still have high unemployment. And, you know, and, and you, you mentioned the mainstream media, and, and, you know, so many of the headline numbers are misleading. When you look at employment, for example, and new jobs creation, just as an example, you know, an economy besides the U.S. with the people coming into the, into the job market, uh, young people as well as, of course, uh, immigrants, you know, we need over, over 200,000 new jobs created every single month. Mm-hmm. So when we get all, this, uh, all these hurrahs over 180,000, we're mm-hmm. not even creating enough jobs to keep the economy moving. And that's why mm-hmm. you have very low labor um, uh, market participation. Um, you know, now something like 12% of young, of, of adults rather, a- adult males between 25 and 55, who are your prime working market, 12% of those people are not even in the labor pool anymore. And that mm-hmm. excludes people in the army, people in school. These are just people who should be working but aren't. Yeah. Um, Jay, we could go through every single every single statistic, but let me just give you one that really hits home, and that is just how uneven this recovery has been. You know, in the spring, um, aggregate household wealth in the U.S. and aggregate household income in the U.S. rose above the 2007 peaks for each of those two measures. That's aggregate. But uh-huh. if you look at the median... The median is still down significantly, and the median is much more important to me than the aggregate because the median tells you how the normal person is doing. Right. Um, if you look at, if you dig down into the numbers, this is astonishing, and I'm going to say it slowly because you know I didn't. It's difficult to comprehend when you first say it. If you look at the um, the the difference in household wealth, household wealth between 2007 and, and, and the end of last year, so, you know, six years from the peak, um, you find that the bottom 50% in terms of wealth are actually down 44%. Wow. Their net household wealth for the bottom 50% is down by 44%. Wow. All, all of the gains in wealth and income, pretty much, most of the gains in wealth and income have been in the top. Ten uh, percent, mm. and there's something wrong with that because um, you know you and I have no problem with the rich getting richer. I, I, I think I can speak for you on that. Yeah, I, um, that's, not, that's not a problem as long as they're doing it justly. So long as they're doing it justly, honestly, and not uh, you know with government handouts, which is what's happening. Um, and you know the poor, you want the poor to be getting richer as well, which sure. they're not. Anyway, so, yeah, I, I'm very skeptical about this house, this uh, recovery in the U.S., and especially when you think that so much money has been created 
to try to, you know, get the economy moving, uh, I, I think any objective observer would have to say that that's been a failure. Yeah, well, where are the objective uh, observers, though, Adrian? Because I certainly don't hear them on the mainstream. I suppose the mainstream press is made up of people that are in that top 10% or top 1% or whatever, enough that they don't really uh, feel the pain. But I, I hear what you're saying. As, as one who comes from the Rust Belt in Ohio, Canton, Ohio, my father was a machinist. I know going back in that part of the country, you know, it's, it's closer to the financial centers where people seem to be doing better and the economies are a bit more robust here in New York and down in your area there, not bad along the coast, San Francisco and places like that. But, um, you know, it's, um, it's, it, it really is a hallowing out of the middle class and, and debt to me, Adrian, is, is the key. I'm looking at debt and some of the numbers of college students, uh, tremendously in debt. They come out of college, can't find jobs. They're living with their parents after two years after being out of college, can't find work. So it's, uh, t- that's what I'm seeing too. And so what you're saying basically is very much in line with what, what my belief is. What about, uh, inflation? You know, John Williams, uh, trots out some numbers. I don't know if you'd be in agreement with them or not. It seems to me, uh, Adrian, what they don't say anymore is what is the cost of living. That's not an expression you hear. You hear the CPI, inflation. I'd like to know, when I was a young guy, they used to say what it costs to keep a family of four alive. And it seems to me that part of the reason, I don't know if those numbers you quoted there are uh, net of purchasing power. They're probably using the government's CPI numbers uh, and if you use uh, John Williams' numbers, which are closer to 8 9% or so of, of cost of living, then he argues that we've never really – things might have gotten a bit better, but we've never really come out, of, come out of the recession. And the kind of numbers that you're talking about with the lower classes, the lower half of the, of the income uh, below the middle class, uh, that we're seeing a real decline – that would seem to be more in tune with what Williams is talking about. Oh, absolutely. But I should point out, those numbers I quoted are from the Federal Reserve. They are the government's own numbers. Sure. So the reality could well be worse. And you add on things, as you mentioned, more young people living with their families, living at home. You know, how do you, how do you quantify that? That's difficult to quantify. Yeah. But certainly, certainly that's a reduction in the standard of living when people are forced to live with their parents. Uh, rather than getting their own house. So, yeah, the situation is probably a lot worse than I mentioned. And, and no, I have the greatest respect for John Williams. His, his work is generally, you know, very, very thorough. Well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that because I'm of, of the same mind. Uh, I know he is not looked kindly on by a lot of people, but uh, the mainstream, for sure, for good reason, I guess. Uh, in any event, uh, you know, no, no um, thief likes the floodlights coming on in the middle of the night. So <laughs> I suppose that's, that's part of the answer to that. Uh, all right. So, you know, Adrian, though, I think that I think you would agree with me if I said that you are not as much of a doomsday guy as I am. You, you and I have Gene Epstein on this show quite often, uh, are, are somewhat more hopeful, I think, and you, you, you're a bit more optimistic than I am, I think, generally speaking. Uh, so what are you doing or how can we, how can we where should we be focusing on uh, putting our money these days? Good, good question. Um, I, I, maybe I'm considered more of an optimist than you, although it's amusing you'd say that, because in most circles in which I travel, they always call me a pessimist. Yes. But I think it's probably because I look outside the country perhaps a little bit more than, um, you know, most Americans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're seeing some quite astonishing values in many parts of the world. I'm a value investor now. Yes. That doesn't mean you jump in right now with both feet. 
But Hong Kong is a good example. Now, Hong Kong, I would not be buying today. I'd like to see how these uh, protests um, pan out over the next, you know, few days or weeks. It has the, that situation has the potential to get extremely nasty if any violence is, is um, uh, undertaken by the police or the PLA in Hong Kong, that would be a disastrous situation. Or if those pro protests spread into southern China itself, that would be a disastrous situation. But I'm looking at Hong Kong, and I mean, some of the valuations there are just astonishing. Some of the property companies, now the property stocks have been hurt a lot um, over the last, you know, uh, several months, in fact, largely because of concern about a property crash in, Hong in China. Now, mm -hmm. if you've got a Hong Kong property company that has a lot of assets in China, or a lot of whose buyers of residential properties in Hong Kong are Chinese, then you're right to be concerned. But if you've got a Hong Kong company, which is a commercial property management company with no Chinese tenants and with none or very little business in China, then the sell-off in those stocks is just overdone. We're looking at a lot. I mean, I'll just mention two, if I may. CSI Please, yes. Now, well, I'm sorry, what was it again, Adrian? It's called CSI, like Crime Scene Investigation. CSI uh -huh, yeah. Properties. The number is, the, the symbol is 497 Hong Kong. Um, it's a small company, but it's trading at only 40% of its book value. Huh. It's got double-digit returns. It's a, it's a good quality company with good assets, with extremely little exposure to China. And yet, as I say, it's, it's sold off. Um, you know, with the rest of rest of the market, um, Hong Kong exposure one point one billion, China exposure fifty seven million. So this is a Hong Kong company. Um, earnings are up, revenue is up. <coughs> Excuse me. So I just think it's 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 a it's a very very cheap company. Uh, perhaps a better one for for listeners would be a, a bigger company called New World Development. You've probably heard of it. That's one of the you know one of the largest companies in Hong Kong. The symbol is number 17, so it's one of the first companies, you know, listed on, on the Hong Kong exchange. Mm -hmm. That yields almost 5%, trades at six times earnings, uh, mm -hmm. sells at under 50% of book value. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, a very, very strong company, growing tremendous land bank, so assets very, very strong. Um, you know, I think you need to look at Hong Kong and, and maybe start picking away and, and, you know, if the situation gets worse, if the stocks come off more, you know, add to it. So, so that's one area we like a lot. Yeah, well, let me ask you, can those stocks be purchased in the U.S.? Oh, I thought you were going to say that. Uh. I did, well, I didn't think about it till afterwards. You know, you can buy New World. New World has an ADR. Okay. The symbol is NBV. L Y okay. Nancy David Victor Larry Yellow. It's reasonably liquid. Um, uh -huh. You know, seventy-two thousand shares on an okay. eight-dollar stock. Not, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but reasonably liquid. It's nothing like Hong Kong, forty-one million shares. But um, yeah. I generally, Jay, I think you know this. I've said it before. I've said it on your show. Generally speaking, unless a foreign company is listed in the U.S., that means it's listed on New York or listed on yeah. NASDAQ, I prefer to buy them in the local market. Sure, sure. Well, that's, uh, that's right for those people who are set up to do that. Any other places around the world you're, you're looking at that look Well, we're cheap? looking at good asset plays in, um, uh, in Europe. 
the mm-hmm. decline in the euro, of course, helps a lot of the European companies, particularly, uh, you know, particularly of their exporters. Um, so, uh, you know, one we're buying is a Prada. Everybody's heard of Prada, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Uh, Prada actually is listed in Hong Kong, even though it's an Italian company. The symbol uh-huh. is 1913 Hong Kong. But... Uh-huh. You know, not as bargain basement. You don't expect um, fashion companies, uh, uh, you know, like that high-end brands to be to be bargains. But the growth has been tremendous. Big exposure to China, uh, returns in the mid twenties. Very little, uh, you know, return on equity, twenty-two percent, for example. Very little debt. So good quality company, and 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 some growth. Um, and you know, we're buying gold stocks as well, of course. Yeah. Any in particular? I know you're very keen on the uh, prospect generators. Uh, are there some favorites there in that sector that you like? Well, Virginia, Virginia Gold is one of yours. Which one? Virginia. Yeah, Virginia is one of my favorites. That's a long-term holding. Um, you know, VGQ on Toronto, VGMNF on VGMNF in Nasdaq, trading a little under thirteen dollars. Interestingly, that one has not come off at all over the last year, unlike you know most of the gold stocks. So I would not describe that as a bargain. I would describe that as a really good, solid company with very, very low risk. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a royalty on Gold Corp's Eleanor Mine, which comes on stream by the end of this year. So they're going to start getting that royalty uh, probably in the spring of next year. They'll start generating money from that, from that uh, uh, royalty. So that's one I like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also like the big royalty companies like Franco Nevada, Royal sure. Gold. Again, the royalties are a good way to play gold because of a low risk mm-hmm. in that sector. Mm-hmm. Do you follow Eurasian minerals at all? I do, I do. I think Eurasian, it's well moved up a tad in the last few days. That's all relative, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, at 70 cents, 71 cents, Eurasian, I think, is just a steal. If you look mm-hmm. at it on an asset basis, uh, you know, Eurasian is just extremely, extremely cheap. Um, yeah. They've got some, you know, very good assets around the world, some very good joint ventures. They've got a joint venture with Newmont in Haiti, which is kind of on hold at the moment because, um, because, um, uh, uh, because, um, you're of, getting of their the mining, mining law. In, in yeah. Haiti is on hold. Um, um, but, uh, you know, that, that they're moving ahead with, and we'll, um, you know, they'll start exploring that. They've got mm-hmm. uh, uh, projects in Sweden, pro- uh, copper projects with joint ventures in Arizona. No, it's a very, very strong company. You know, uh, Adrian, I was uh, talking to the management of that company a couple of weeks ago, and they mentioned the, uh, the Russian asset that's a huge, Rus- a huge uh, copper-gold uh, porphyry system uh, that is absolutely enormous, and apparently there's some possibility... Uh, of the Chinese buying that out from them, and they, uh, the what the management told me was, if they sell it, uh, they will get more for the price uh, of their share of that project than the uh, market cap of the company. So I think well, you know, it's it could definitely be very worth more than the market share of the company. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, at the moment, the only people interested in a large copper project in Russia are the Chinese. Right. Um, but but from what I gather, there's certainly some competition for it. Yeah. 
Well, that's interesting. Uh, well, I certainly, uh, my engineers telling me we have less than two minutes left. I know the Hong Kong issue is something that I'm going to be talking to Dr. Peter Treadway about next uh, week. He's a, he's a money manager in Hong Kong and New York, and he's written a, uh, an article here, The Coming Destruction of Hong Kong. But I did talk oh, to damn. Peter earlier this morning. <laughs> he's, not, he's, he's not as uh, down on Hong Kong as that. More or less taking your attitude, let's wait and see. This thing could clear out, and it might be minimal damage and some great opportunities. Uh, anything else, uh, Adrian? You'd like to add before we uh, say goodbye today? No, I think I think you you pretty much covered it all, um, Jay. Well, I it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure if we had more time, uh, I could dig some more good ideas out of you. Absolutely. Uh, I think. But, well, uh, I hope so. Hope you're good. Yeah. I think the main key is these are difficult times. You need to be looking for bargains. We all know, you know, Baron Rothschild said, buy when blood's in the streets. We all know that that's the time to buy things. It's just not always easy. So I no, wouldn't it's... go overboard. I wouldn't be aggressive, but I would certainly be buying the sectors, you know, that I've discussed. All right. Well, thank you very much, Adrian, for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, folks, that's all we have uh, for this first hour, but there is a second hour at jtaylormedia.com. Go there to hear what Gene Epstein, David Jensen, and Daniel McAdams have to say. Uh, Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. David Jensen, some very interesting parallels he's drawing between what went on in De Gaulle's France uh, with CIA fomentation of the students there and what's going on in Hong Kong. He thinks there's some parallels with the Shanghai gold markets opening up. So I don't know if he's right or not, but very interesting. You're not going to want to miss what these three gentlemen have to say at J. Taylor Media. I'll see you there right now. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with J. Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. 